We are really grateful uh, that you're here today. As we mentioned, we are beginning this new series on discipleship. You see this behind me. Doesn't that look so good? It took me all week to write that. All right. I'm kidding. That is the work of one of our members, Polly Ann Kaysen, who I know I'm embarrassing by calling her name, but wanted you to know uh, the hard work that one of our own members put into this, this beautiful piece behind me that really sums up where we'll be over the next several uh, weeks as we think about discipleship and we think about what we just sang, what it means to know Jesus and to trust Jesus and to follow Jesus. Uh, in the spring of 1985, executives at Coca-Cola were kind of in a panic because Coke was losing market share to Pepsi. And so uh, in a panic, the, the executives at Coca-Cola, you know, Coke had been the leading soft drink company in the nation for decades. And so, so they pulled together and they met with a strategic consultant and they said, okay, we need to figure out what's going on. And so this strategic consultant drew a, a box on the whiteboard and said, okay, here's, here's the deal. Here's how we're going to start. Before we develop any sort of strategy, we need to know what the mission is because strategy always flows out of mission. So he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your core mission and come up with a word that describes the core mission and put that word in the box. And so they spent hours, you know, talking about this and batting around different ideas and different concepts. Okay, why are we in business? You know, what goes in the box? And so they, they narrowed it down after a lot of discussion. They narrowed it down to this one word, and that word was taste. They said, we exist to deliver a great tasting product. And so taste went in the box. And so as a, as a result of that conversation, the executives at Coke then began to think, okay, well, if that means we're losing market share to Pepsi, clearly we're not we're not delivering on the taste. And so it led to this, this conversation where the executives at Coke decided to change their recipe. They decided to tweak things and to, to change their recipe so that they could deliver great taste. And the product, some of you are old enough to remember this when it happened, the product was New Coke, all right? Those of you who are younger, you probably saw it on Stranger Things. Some of us who are older, we lived through it, okay? But New Coke debuted in 1985, in April of 1985, promising a better taste and a, you know, a, a smoother finish, you know, all this kind of stuff. And immediately, the backlash was strong. I mean, like the first week New Coke hit the shelves, people were calling in to Coca-Cola headquarters in Atlanta, you know, screaming and yelling, what are you doing? You're changing things. Uh, people were, were kind of going to the stores and hoarding up on the original Coke uh, in case of the zombie apocalypse, you know, we would at least have Coke in, in the pantry for a while. I remember my parents talking about this. I was, you know, 10 years old. And uh, I remember them talking about it, you know, this, all this, this, you know, hullabaloo about new Coke. And uh, a couple of days later, I go and I open the pantry and there we have about eight two liters, you know, which for us, that was a lot. So we were stocking up as well. The response was just, you know, enormous outcry. What are you doing? You changed the recipe. You know, what's happening? And so the executives at Coke, it didn't take them long to kind of reconvene, and they, they, they pulled back together, and they had, I don't know if it was the same strategic consultant, probably a different one, but they pulled together, and they're like, okay, what, you know, what's going on? And so in that meeting, here's what they did, they, the strategic consultant put another box on the board, and he said, clearly you put the wrong word in the box. <laughs> so let's restart, okay, what is our mission? What is really important? Why do we exist? 
And this time, instead of the word taste, after a lot of conversation, after spending a lot of time, you know, talking through all of this, they, they came up with another word, and that's, that's the word tradition. And the executives at Coke said at that time, okay, clearly taste, that's not it. We have a tradition, a tradition of delivering this product, and, and we mess with the formula. We, we, we change that tradition, and that's what people are responding to. And so in this conversation, they decided that tradition needed to be the word that they put in the box, the tradition associated with their original product. And as Bob Buford says in his book, Halftime, finding the right word to put in the box, identifying their core mission, enabled the company to recover its momentum quickly after a monumental blunder. The upper management there at Coca-Cola decided that the best, the, the best path <laughs> for moving forward uh, was an old path. It was a path that had led them to great success in the first place. And that's where we get the name now that's associated with the product, Coca-Cola Classic. They reclaimed their story as the best-selling soft drink in the world. So some of you probably heard that before, the, the whole new Coke uh, blunder that is, um, uh, it's, it's a cautionary tale uh, about the dangers of putting the wrong word in the box, because when you misidentify your core mission, that, that's always going to lead to disaster. My question for you as we, as we get started is, okay, for, for us as, as, as a church, for the church just at large, what would go in the box? What's the core mission of the church? Why does the church exist? And just kind of cutting to the chase here, I think the Lord tells us the word that goes in the box, and that word is, is discipleship. Um, our core mission comes from Jesus. And before he left, before he ascended into heaven after the resurrection, he left us some words here that tell us about our core mission. We'll make our way to Luke's gospel in a minute, but I, I want us to hear these words from Matthew 28. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, he says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I think Jesus is telling us that the word that goes in the box there, discipleship. Uh, Jesus gathers his followers together here, and again, just before his ascension, he gives them uh, a mission, and that mission is pretty clearly spelled out there in Matthew 28, to go, he says, and to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to be obedient to the commands uh, of Jesus. And, and he grounds all of that, as we just read, he grounds all that in his own authority. Before he gives the mission, he says, all authority has been given to me, all authority in heaven and on earth. Think about that. Uh, all authority resides within Jesus. It's been given to him. In both of these realms, in heaven, in the, in, in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places, but also all authority on earth. So he, he grounds the mission there. He's saying, look, 
I'm, I have all authority. His voice, Jesus is saying, is the authoritative voice. That's why when we talk about what word goes in the box for a church, we go to Jesus. Let's listen to Jesus. I might have a different way of saying it. You might have a different way of saying it. But if we're really going to be spectacular, if we're going to be who the Lord wants us to be, then we take our marching orders from him, right? So we look to Jesus, and Jesus says, here's what goes in the box, okay? Discipleship. And by that, he means making disciples. It's grounded in his authority. So with all that established, Jesus invites his disciples into this disciple-making ministry. And not just those disciples who were gathered there with him on that mountaintop in Galilee that day. But no, he extends that invitation he extends that command that mission on out to every generation of believers i think when jesus says i will be with you always to the very end of the age he's issuing a promise to be present with his body on earth as they carry forward this disciple making mandate with these words i think jesus is reminding us what ought to go in the box and so in matthew 28 you find kind of an implicit word about discipleship and an explicit word about discipleship. Here's what I mean by that, okay? The explicit word in Matthew 28 about discipleship is to go and make disciples. I mean, we just read it. It's pretty clear, right? So it's a pretty explicitly stated mandate to go and make disciples. But beneath that, there's kind of this implicit sort of implied teaching about discipleship too, which is in order to to, to go and to make disciples, you first have to be a disciple yourself because Jesus is speaking to those disciples and so I think with this passage and with this teaching Jesus is telling us that what goes in the box is not just making disciples but first and foremost being disciples on our own being disciples first and then going out and making disciples as well so the core mission the word that goes in the box discipleship to be disciples, and to make disciples. To have our lives centered on Jesus Christ. As Joe just reminded us as we came around the table, you know, we live in a, in a world where the principalities and the powers are vying for our attention and our allegiance at every corner. But when we come together here, we profess what our common life is all about, that we find life at the table, that we find life with Jesus at the center. That's what discipleship really is all about as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ and so today as we as we begin this I'd like for us to think about discipleship in terms of those those three words that we've already highlighted that these these are the characteristic activities and and actions associated with a life of discipleship it is to know Jesus it is to trust Jesus and it is to follow Jesus To be a disciple of Christ, it means that we know Jesus, not that we just know about him, but that we know him personally. As Jesus says in John's gospel, those who know him, they hear his voice, for he is the good shepherd. So there is a knowledge about Jesus, but there is knowledge of Jesus. There is knowledge in relationship with Jesus, and that's where discipleship begins. But it doesn't just reside there in the, in the realm of knowledge. A disciple trusts Jesus. 
we know Jesus to be some of the, the terms that we've used to describe him here today. He is Lord and he is Redeemer and he is Savior and he is Messiah. But until we fully trust him, those are just words on a page. Because to trust Jesus is to submit ourselves over to his authority. To give him control of our lives. And that's what every one of us profess in the waters of baptism. We walk down into the water and we said, Jesus is Lord and I'm not. You're in control and I'm not. Put to death the old me and raise me up something new and redeemed and, and transformed by the power of your spirit. That's, that's what we're saying and confessing in the act of baptism. It is a rich and beautiful expression of trust in Jesus. But thankfully, it doesn't just end there. Jesus doesn't just leave us in the water and say, okay, see you in 50 years when you make it to heaven. Boy, it's going to be great, right? But no, what we follow him then out of the water, out into the world, we begin to follow Jesus wherever it is that he leads us. We follow him out into the world to share the good news of what we've experienced. We follow him out into the world filled with faith, hope, and love. We follow him out into the world bearing fruit that the Holy Spirit brings about in our lives. We follow him wherever it is he tells us to go, around the world and back again to share the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what you do as a disciple. So to be a disciple, and just, you know, when we put discipleship in the box, what we're putting in there is, is this. We're making a statement about knowing Jesus and trusting Jesus and following Jesus. And I hope that we can just familiarize ourselves with that over the next several weeks. Nothing necessarily revelatory about that necessarily, but but I'd love for us to begin talking about discipleship in those ways. Helping others to know Jesus, to trust Jesus and follow Jesus, just as we ourselves have come to know him and trust him and follow him. Do you know how this church began? It's been a while since I've shared this story uh, in a sermon, but it's just a great, it's a great reminder of our roots and and who we are, and the story God's been writing here. Mayfair began uh, as a church plant in 1949. I don't know if you knew that. If you're kind of new around here, uh, maybe, maybe you never knew that. But this church began nearly 70 years ago as a church plant. There were a handful of members from the Central Church of Christ, and they just had this burden that felt like there really needs to be a church on the outskirts of town. And so, they set out, some of you are laughing because you know where we're going with this, right? They set out to plant a church at the corner of Bob Wallace and Poinciana Street, okay? Back then, that was the outskirts of town. That was getting, get, kind of getting out there, okay? But they just felt really strongly, hey, there needs to be a church there. And so, and so they did. So in 1949, they started, they started meeting at this little red brick building at the corner there, Bob Wallace. In the, in the Mayfair area um, of town, and uh, that's where our story as a church began. Uh, that's that, that picture over there on the left, the little red brick building that was there up until a couple of years ago. Uh, this, this picture on the right was taken whenever, um, many years later, over at uh, the old, what we refer to as the old building, the second Mayfair building, okay, over off uh, Carl T. Airport over here. Um, Whitesburg, sorry. Um, but those are, those are our, our pioneers, we refer to them. 
uh, those who are part of that original group. We still have some here today. That number is continuing to draw down. The Lord's calling some of them home, okay? But that's how our story began. And I, and I imagine that if you were able to ask some of those, those pioneers, and say, you know, uh, was that an easy decision to make? I imagine they would say, no, not really. I mean, it, it, been a, it would have been a lot easier probably to just stay within the confines of an established church, you know, or to say, you know, somebody else can go do that. Um, but for these believers, for them, that's what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus, what it meant to, to know Jesus and to trust Jesus and to follow Jesus and to, and to say, okay, we want more people to know Jesus and trust Jesus and follow Jesus, so, so here I am, send me. Let's, let's go. This is, this is what we do. And I love that. Uh, this November will mark our 70th anniversary as a church. And you'll hear more about that as the time, um, as the time approaches. But I, just, I, I say all of that in order to say this, that from those earliest days, right up to the very present, uh, this church has always had a rich appreciation for the importance of discipleship. For the importance of being disciples, but also making disciples. Because for those earliest believers who moved out in 1949, they, they moved with a, a real deep sense of, of wanting to be obedient to what Jesus said in Matthew 28. I guarantee you that was in their hearts. And that got on the DNA of this church, and that's why today, presently, missions, both foreign and local, are such a part of our story. It doesn't make us perfect. I'm not trying to like, throw us a parade here, okay? I'm just saying this is part of our DNA, though. And so this desire to go make disciples, that's deeply wedded into our identity. But even at a deeper level than that is the desire to first be a disciple. Because when you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you want to make disciples of Jesus Christ. When you have come to know Jesus and trust Jesus and follow Jesus, and your heart's desire, your deepest desire is to help other people come to know Jesus the way you've come to know him. And for others to, to trust Jesus the way you've learned to trust in Jesus. And to see others follow Jesus into this abundant life that he offers the way that you are experiencing the abundant life in Jesus Christ as well. And I just, I love thinking back on our story in light of where I think God is calling us to go here in the future. Uh, not long ago, our shepherds started praying and thinking about our future. I don't think they had a literal, you know, whiteboard with a box on it, kind of like the Coca-Cola executives, okay? But I do know they, they were asking questions about, okay, well, we do a lot of things. Are we doing what's really most important? And they started asking those questions and praying about it. And, and what I love is, like, rather than coming up with a new Coke idea, <laughs> you know, um, Instead, our shepherds felt really strongly that the best way forward for us as a church would be to look back to our past. And not just 70 years ago, okay, but to look back 2,000 years to the words of Jesus when he tells us to be disciples and to make disciples. Our shepherds believe that the time is right for us to focus intentionally on that call of Jesus to be disciples and to make disciples. So as a church, we just want to be really intentional about, about putting Jesus 
in the box, about keeping discipleship in the box, to be intentional about knowing Jesus and trusting Jesus and following Jesus, to commit ourselves to being disciples of Christ, keeping him at the center of every decision, every message, and every ministry. So that's why we're starting this. You know, that, that, that's why this series is taking place right now. Over the next several weeks, as Joe has already told you, we'll spend our time in Luke's gospel, just kind of especially digging in in like Luke 9 through 19 as Jesus is marching toward Jerusalem. His teaching on discipleship just ratchets up more fully right there, and it's, and it, and it's powerful. So that's where we'll spend the majority of our time over the next several months. I know in our adults classes, there's a, a curriculum that's been developed. We've had a team that's been working on this for quite some time now, and so in just a few weeks, There'll be a curriculum that won't necessarily, you know, parallel what we're doing here in the pulpit, but it's a curriculum that will help us think more fully about what it means to know Jesus and to trust Jesus and to follow Jesus. We've hired Lane to come and to spend some time here with us in the the years to come to, to be our discipling minister and what God has in store, you know, through his ministry. I, I, I don't know, but I'm excited about that as well. And all that's just, just the beginning. And here's the focus in all of that, is to help you, to help me, to help as many people as possible to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, to know and trust and follow Jesus more deeply. So that's, that's where we are, and that's where we're going to be, and I, I hope that you can be praying about that. I hope that that excites you. I hope there's something in this that, that really stirs in your soul, because again, I think back to what Joe just said, and we... We live in a culture that increasingly needs the word of Jesus Christ and the good news he came to deliver. With all that in mind, as we focus here on discipleship, I'd like for us to look quickly at a passage in Luke. Luke chapter 5, we'll read these verses together. I'll have them on the screen as well. Luke 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. They left everything. And they followed him. Here's a big idea we start with in this series. Discipleship is knowing and trusting and following Jesus. I think that's a great biblical definition of what it means to be a disciple. 
And I think you see that happening here in this, this little episode with Simon Peter. Uh, Simon comes to know Jesus. And Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus has already been healing. He's already been performing miracles. He's already been teaching about the kingdom. And so people are, are pressing in around him. That's why Jesus has to get in Simon Peter's boat in the first place. They're just they're too crowded. And so it's, it kind of creates a, a, a natural sort of amphitheater effect. He gets out onto the water. He's able to speak. His voice reflects off the water out into you know, the crowd. They're able to hear him better. And so all of that happens because of the popularity of Jesus. So Simon Peter already knows of Jesus. I'm sure of it. I'm sure he's heard the man's name. I'm sure that he knows that there's this great teacher, this, this rabbi who is, has come and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and all of this, okay? But as we see what, what happens here, he enters into more than just like a cursory level of knowledge about Jesus. In this encounter, Simon Peter comes to know Jesus personally. He comes to know him in a deep, deep way. Um, Disciples are first people who've come to know Jesus. That's kind of what Paul gets at over in Romans 10. How are you ever going to come to belief? This is my summary of what he says. How are you ever going to come to belief in, in acknowledging the lordship of Jesus if you never hear about him and you never know anything about him? So knowledge of Jesus, knowing the facts, knowing the story, all that has its place. It's supremely important as we talk about what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, but, but that knowledge is not just head knowledge. It may begin there in, in the head, okay, but it quickly moves down. As, as Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He doesn't say, I know my own, and they know about me, although that's certainly true. That head knowledge is meant to prompt an even deeper kind of knowing. We might say to prompt a level of trust. And so we see Simon Peter acknowledging cognitively. He knows Jesus. He knows something about the man. But that knowledge then moves from head to heart. And he begins to trust in Jesus. Because to be a disciple isn't just to know about Jesus. It is to move into a trusting relationship. A faithful, obedient relationship with Jesus. Simon Peter has to trust Jesus here, doesn't he? Because Jesus comes along and he says to the professional fisherman, hey, throw your nets out. And there might have been a point where Simon Peter was you know, tempted to say, get out of here. Who are you? You just showed up, preacher. I've been out here doing this all night. I mean, it's essentially what he says, right? And he might have been tempted to sort of just say, who, who are you? But he, but he says, okay, you know, if, if that's what you want. That's what you look at verse five. But at your word, he says, I will let down the nets. And that's the moment of trust for Simon Peter. Jesus asks Simon Peter to do something. And it's great that you know about me. <laughs> but to really trust in Jesus. You gotta do something. That's kind of what's required here. Not in a works righteousness earn your salvation kind of way but he asks simon peter to do something discipleship always entails this act of trusting jesus it's way more than just knowing about jesus it's entering into a relationship acknowledging his lordship you see this at first simon peter refers to jesus as master you catch that 
that's a generic term for sir back in the ancient world. He's saying, okay, ma- I mean, you know, master, that might sound like he's in a trusting relationship with Jesus. He's not. He's just being polite. Okay, sir, you know, I, n- I know you don't know a whole lot about fishing, but, you know, we've already done this. And we didn't catch anything. Well, we're really tired. <laughs> but okay, you know, if we have to prove you wrong, let's, let's go out there. And, he does, and then when the great haul of fish comes in, did you notice what Simon Peter says to Jesus? The word he uses is no longer master, it's no longer sir, it's no longer, you know, hey, preacher. He says, get away from me because I'm sinful, oh, Lord. I think we're right to detect in that a shift in Simon Peter. From knowledge about the man to a a desire to trust in him. Could you trust someone who's able to perform that kind of miracle? Simon Peter is. He calls him Lord, the very same name that, according to the Apostle Paul, every tongue will one day confess. The Lordship of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father in Philippians chapter 2. So to, to trust in Jesus is to acknowledge, again, his Lordship. We talked about earlier this year, that's, that's the meaning of baptism. It's this act of trusting submission, submitting yourself to the will of God. But then after this, after this there comes this final piece, this final component to the life of discipleship after we come to know jesus and after we put our trust in jesus then we set out to follow jesus in fact that's the characteristic activity of a disciple in the pages of the new testament more than anything else the verb that is associated with disciple is follow if you just want like a 10 second elevator speech summary of what we're trying to say here today disciples follow jesus period and that's what happens here Verse 11, it says, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. So we see this progression. Discipleship begins with knowledge. There's this head component to discipleship. But there's a movement from that cognitive knowledge into more relational knowledge. We might say a movement from knowing about Jesus to knowing him personally. And so that's the movement from head to heart. That's where we trust in Jesus. Remember in the Bible, the heart is the center of decision. So to trust Jesus involves the heart, not simply the head. And then in this final piece, when Jesus calls the disciples, they leave everything and they follow him. They roll up their sleeves. There's a a hand component to discipleship as well, to complement both head and heart. And that's the template for discipleship we see in the life of Simon Peter. And what's instructive is that that becomes the template then for me as well. When we put discipleship in the box, we're reclaiming our story. The question I have to ask myself is, do I know Jesus? Do I know about him? Sure. But is that knowledge about fostering knowledge of? Do I know Jesus like a subject in the history books or do i know him as lord and messiah and savior because that leads me to ask do i trust jesus some of us know jesus to be those things it's just that we don't feel it in our hearts because we've mistaken the life of discipleship simply for knowledge of but are we trusting in him are we, are we giving over not simply our heads, but our hearts as well? I'll tell you folks, he doesn't just want to baptize your head. 
He wants the whole self. And so where is your heart in relation to Jesus? Are you trusting him? And then the last piece, are you following him? Maybe for some of us, that's, that's you know, head and heart, yeah. We start talking about our hands and what we're supposed to do. Maybe that's where we stumble. A disciple knows Jesus and trusts Jesus and follows Jesus. The question is, do you know him? And do you trust him? And do you want to follow him? If not today, I would ask you just to really pray about that. Because we have an opportunity right now. I don't know how many more opportunities like this we get. You and I don't know. We don't, we're not the authors of our stories. We're just characters. There comes a point in time when the, when, when the curtain draws, right? There comes a point in time when the story ends. And we've all known people who felt like their stories ended way too early. And for all, for all I know, my story might be one of those, so might yours. So if you don't know Jesus and you have never trusted Jesus and you're not following Jesus, my, my plea to you today would be that while today is still today, let today be, as the Apostle Paul says, the day of salvation when you are reconciled back to the one who made you, the one who sent his son so that you'd know him and trust him and follow him and experience life, eternal life, yes, but that eternal life bleeding into the present day right now, the abundant life that he came to give us. If you need to submit yourself to him and trust him in baptism today, I hope you'll do that. If there's something on your heart, something that's keeping you from fully following Jesus, and we need to be praying about that for you as your church family, we stand ready to do that as well. This word is given. In the name of Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, who makes all things new. Let's stand together now and let's sing.